Hello and welcome to a new episode of Packaging Talks, the podcast series brought to you by the Packaging 360 team. Today, our guest on uh, Packaging Talks is Robert Lillianfeld. Robert Lillianfeld is the executive director at Spring. The full form of Spring is the Sustainable Packaging Research Information and Network Networking Group, a group that is designed to provide expert thinking and advice you need to make informed decisions regarding sustainable packaging concerns. The focus is on key sustainability issues like climate change, recycling and material selection. Join me in this podcast as we get into the conversation with Robert who addresses a whole of issues concerning uh, plastics, sustainability, carbon neutrality, etc. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Packaging Talks. Today, our guest is Dr. Robert Lillianfield. He's the executive director of Spring. Spring is uh, the Sustainable Packaging Research Information and Networking Group based out of uh, the United States. Spring is designed to provide expert thinking and advice that you need to make informed decisions regarding sustainable packaging concerns. And he focuses mainly on key sustainability issues like climate change, recycling and material selection. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Robert. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be with you. So Robert, as I just mentioned in the introduction, you are committed towards uh, sustainability and climate and climate change and other issues. So let's start by asking you, what are your thoughts on emerging trends in sustainable packaging and the move globally towards uh, evolving the circular economy? And also, if you could tell us, you know, what are your thoughts about the brand owners initiatives in this space? From our perspective, the, the only way we can solve issues relating to climate change is, is to do so on a global basis. It's a global problem. Nature doesn't care where, where CO2 comes from. It only cares how much of it is, is in the environment. So from that perspective, it, it's important that we have this global discussion. There's an old American saying, problems are global and solutions are local. And this is very, very true of the sustainability uh, issue as it relates to packaging. One of the things we've started to do is to explore the, the differences that make it so hard to do things on a global basis. And those differences relate cultural norms, different economies, different solid waste management infrastructures, and six or seven other issues. There are no global packaging solutions per se. So for example, in, in an area of the world where, where composting is, is something that has significant infrastructure al already in place, the, one of the strategies for, for CO2 reduction and waste reduction is it could, could very well be industrial composting of waste. But here in the United States, we don't have that kind of infrastructure. And, and therefore, uh, most of what we're trying to do relates to mechanical recycling. So you have to look at both what's currently available to people and how to make the most of that. And the second thing that makes this very, very complex is the fact that there are new technologies evolving. One of the things we have to make sure to do is uh, not only deal with the, the current situations that exist, and this is what makes this whole concept of sustainable packaging so complex because of, of different cultural norms and different current solid waste infrastructures, 
but there are new technologies on the horizon that could that could change the picture of what we ought to be doing from a, a greenhouse gas generation reduction perspective. And these include uh, chemical recycling, or as the industry likes to refer to it as advanced recycling. There are capabilities in terms of biodegradable polymers and biopolymers that are on the horizon, but not yet available. So there's this ongoing balancing act between what can we do now versus what can we do in the future. And again, this all comes down from, from the need for a global agreement as to what it is we're trying to accomplish. And our perspective on that is the single most important thing to worry about is reduction in greenhouse gas generation. Okay, fine, that's great. Uh, everywhere globally, uh, Robert, you'll agree that there is a clamor for you know, banning plastics and move to exploring uh, uh, alternate packaging material. But do you think realistically it is possible to eliminate plastics-based packaging in relation to the uh, available options that are available, let's say paper or metals or glass. So we just like to know what you think about a complete ban on plastics packaging. Well, it's a really good question. And if I look at it from a purely scientific basis, a ban on plastic packaging makes virtually no sense. There are plenty of studies and, and I've done quite a few of these or analyzed hundreds of them that clearly show on a life cycle basis that in, in general, plastics significantly reduce greenhouse gas generation versus other materials. And, and the reason for that has to do with the bond that, that is used to create plastics. The carbon oxygen or carbon carbon bond is very, very strong. And, and because of the strength of that bond, Plastics have a very high strength to weight ratio. And the best way to think of that is, is, a, is a plastic bag, which holds a great deal of, of material for very, very little amount of weight. On average, you can fit 11 times more plastic bags in a truck or in, in a grocery store counter than you can a paper bag. And so not only get, do you get to save room in the store and, and cut transportation costs, but the cost of the bags are less. The, the problem, of course, is the human problem, which is that plastics became a victim of their own success. Uh, years ago, when flexible packaging, uh, not bags, but uh, sachets, for example, uh, small pouches came on the market, they were a very, very small part of, of the overall packaging universe. And at that time, their message that we use 90% less material was an excellent message. It was absolutely true. And they were the single best way to reduce environmental impact of packaging. The problem is that they became a victim of their own success. So that today, those types of packages, flexible packaging or soft packaging, as it's also called, have become basically ubiquitous. They're available everywhere. And their presence post-use has gone from being a very small portion of what people see in their trash to a very large portion. And, and therefore the issue can no longer be viewed simply as a source reduction issue. The issue has to be looked at from the perspective of how do we reduce so much of this waste that we really don't know what to do with. Or, and in, in much of the developed world would go into landfills and in, in, in much of the underdeveloped world, um, specifically in, in Asia um, and in Indonesia, for example, it's probably not going anywhere good. Uh, I've 
I've seen many cases in, in Jakarta and in Sumatra where after a heavy rain, uh, this type of packaging is in fact ending up in waterways because there's no solid waste infrastructure with, with which to capture it. So it, there are two competing issues here and no one ever talks about them that way. So if, if you're a legislature and, uh, or a policymaker and your constituents are complaining about packaging waste, your first reaction is, well, let's figure out how to get rid of it. And that's true, but they don't have the expertise to understand both why it's valuable and secondly, how it, it, it could be re recovered or, or reused probably chemically for, for additional purposes. And so a lot of what's been discussed in terms of the circular economy um, has been about recycling. And in, in, in many cases, you're asking materials that were never designed to be recycled because they were designed to reduce material consumption and, and energy consumption during production and use are now trying to fit into the circular economy uh, perspective. And I, I know this might be considered heresy, but the circular economy sh shouldn't be, in our opinion, it, it's not the end all, it's not the goal, it's a strategy. The goal is greenhouse gas reduction. And if, if that's the goal, then you have to go back to looking at life cycle analyses to see which technologies, which processes, at which, which materials do the most in terms of reducing the production of, of uh, carbon dioxide and, and methane. Much of the time, it's products that fit easily into the circular economy, but some of the times it, it really isn't. So that's a different perspective on, on, than what the typical legislator or consumer is looking at. And frankly, it's probably the biggest problem the industry faces in the future. And it's a problem that the industry could have done more to prevent if they'd been really listening in the past. That was quite insightful. Now, you did mention uh, something about uh, biopolymers and biodegradable polymers being uh, available, uh, but the quantum is not sufficient to compete with the existing thermoplastic. So there is another option that is uh, biodegradable additives or additive uh, degradation promoter additives, uh, which are being talked about for uh, food packaging. But are these biodegradable additives really a good solution for uh, food packaging applications? That's one of my favorite questions. And it's a complex one. Let, let me just set a stage. In Saudi Arabia, the presence of oxodegradables and, and other additives is required. In Europe, they're outlawed. And in the United States, they are strongly disapproved of. And there are a few reasons for that. The, the first is that there is no infrastructure really in place to deal with packaging compostability. That's, so that's, that's one issue. The second issue is that if not done properly, those materials don't fully biodegrade or break down in industrial composting facilities, and they leave waste in, in um, uh, either plastic bits or microplastics. And the people who want to buy that potential compost from the industrial composting facility don't want that material in what it is that they're purchasing. So if you're 
if you're a gardener or a farmer, you, you don't want to spread plastics out in your fields. So that's an issue. But the real issue for me goes back to your, your circular economy question. The, the first thing people have to realize about, about these additives is when, if and when the plastics break down, they do not form compostable material. They don't produce hummus um, or, or humus, I guess, as it's pronounced. They don't produce fertilizer. They don't produce soil conditioners. There is nothing about having plastics in that environment that makes any kind of sense. The other piece to this is that the real output of breaking these materials down is greenhouse gases, uh, primarily carbon dioxide and methane or carbon dioxide and uh, ammonia, depending on whether or not it's aerobic or anaerobic processing. So there's nothing really circular about that. You're, you're basically, you've wasted the carbon molecule. And, and you know you've wasted it because one of the things that does happen when you break these materials down is they get hot. And that heat comes from breaking, in the case of fossil fuel-based plastics, the carbon-carbon the, the bond, and in the case of uh, biomaterials, the carbon-oxygen bonds. So uh, there, there really is no great reason to do it with, with a few exceptions. And those exceptions have to do primarily with, with food waste. If, if you're working in, a, in, a, in, in an institutional food environment or a restaurant, you're, you're probably not going to take the time to wash out your, your, your plastic packaging, especially the bags. So they're going to be probably contaminated and of, not of any value in the, in the typical mechanical recycling stream. But if, if they do break down, if they can be composted, then it makes sense to simply throw them in with your other food waste so that those materials can actually be composted and broken down in, into fertilizers, et cetera. The dirty little secret is composters accept compostable plastics, not because they want to, but because they want the 99% of material that goes with it, the, the food waste, the, the yard waste, uh, grass clippings, leaves, et cetera. So to them, it's simply a cost of doing business but there's absolutely no advantage for them to have any form of non-food waste or non-yard waste in their in-streams. Um, in Robert, we've heard uh, a lot about life cycle analysis and uh, other concepts being discussed. Uh, carbon neutrality is a new concept altogether. So it would be good if you can explain what is carbon neutrality in the context of uh, sustainable packaging and how it's going to take shape in the, coming, in the coming years? Well, just like the concepts of, of recycling and composting, uh, carbon neutrality on the surface sounds very simple. The objective is, is to ensure that you produce no more carbon going out than existed before you did that production. It's, it's as if you didn't produce anything at all. There's, there's no net increase in the amount of of carbon dioxide or methane that's going into the environment. And it sounds wonderful, and frankly, it, it would be wonderful, but it's exceedingly hard to accomplish. And because of that, uh, an industry has grown up that basically sells uh, carbon neutrality permits, if, if you will. So 
if, if you're a heavy producer of carbon dioxide, you can buy offsets. So if there's some place in the world, let's say a, a forest um, where there's a significant amount of CO2 that's being taken out of the environment by, by trees, um, you can buy that offset as a, as a way to reduce your so-called impact on the environment. The, the reality is, is, is quite different. Uh, you, you really haven't done anything uh, because all you're doing is buying the rights to something that's already there, whether, whether you use it or not. Uh, the other problem is that a number of, of um, NGOs, uh, nonprofit groups, have looked at these offset schemes or opportunities and shown that, that they don't really exist that many of them are based on either false premises or situations where the, the carbon reduction isn't really occurring. So it's a, I think it's, it's very problematic. It, it comes down to something very simple, which is it's going to be very hard for us to take all of the world's existing infrastructure and, and dial it back. And the real issues have to do with um, consumption, and population growth, uh, because th those are the drivers. More people consuming more things will, is significantly outweighing our capability to reduce what we're currently doing through things like offsets or, or even, even light weighting. Uh, the other problem is that most of the world's CO2 production is coming from agriculture and energy usage. So, for example, the United States agricultural industry produces about one third of the world's annual greenhouse gas output. The amount of energy used globally to heat homes and office buildings and, and factories, government institutions, hospitals, schools um, is, is significant, far more significant than, than what's going on in the packaging universe. So the, the real issue is, is how do we get people to see the benefit of using less? I mean, how do we share the value getting, I'm, I don't want to say getting by, but being able to get by with fewer material goods in a way that still manages to, to improve the quality of life on a global basis? Well, on that note, let me thank you, Robert, for a very, very interesting session. Touched upon uh, many of the critical issues that we are aware, but we needed clarity on some of those complex issues like carbon neutrality, etc. It was a pleasure having you on Packaging Talks and on, a, on behalf of Packaging 360 and our listeners, we would like to, we'd like to thank you for uh, being our guest on Packaging Talks. Thank you and I hope we can get to do this again. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Packaging Talks powered by Packaging 360. See you in our next episode.